From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, our weekly show on sports analytics. Even during the time of coronavirus, we are doing our show. We do it via Zoom. We're coming at you taped on Monday afternoon via Zoom. We've got Eric Bradle here, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey. Audie Weiner is out doing Audie Weiner things. He will be back. We're usually all here, but at least some combination of us are here. Every week, we talk about coronavirus for the first half hour of the show or so. It's important context, not only for our lives, but for sports, of course. It affects all of sports these days. And then we'll spend the second half of the show maybe a bit more talking about the sports world. And every week that we do the show, we get a little bit more sports to talk about, which is good fun. Gentlemen, good to see you as always. Delighted to be here. I want to say one last word to the to our to our listening audience. You guys, since we're not live, you can't take a, we can't take calls, but we're always happy to get emails. Or a great way to reach us is on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter at WMoneyBall. You can hit us up that way. Send us questions. We love hearing from you. We love taking your questions and discussing them on air. Eric, Shane, and now Audie Weiner is joining us. The whole crew is here. Good to see you. How are you guys? Excellent. How are you doing? Doing well. Good. Great to be back in the Philadelphia region, which is nice. Eric is Eric's been traveling a little bit by car, and he's back. And this is, I think, the end of his summer travels. And that is true. Familiar. Are you wearing a soccer jersey of some kind, Eric? It looks a little bit soccer jersey. I am wearing a uh, workout jersey. Let's call it. It's not a soccer jersey. Okay, but it's Adidas. Adidas available. He's available for branding. If, if Nike wants to jump in for the endorsement, Eric Bradlow can wear his clothes. I'll, I'll do it in the classroom too. I've always, I've gone to the Wharton school for the last 25 years and say, look, if you want to put logos on me while I'm teaching, let's do it. I've always thought that was a missed opportunity. Like, why don't we walk in like, kind of like in those, like, like thing, like the NASCAR, like outfits where we're just like kind of yeah, covered right, in over, covered do, in logos. Do you logos. want your opinion bought? Shane, are you talking about buying someone buying your opinion? Is that the concern that our academic freedom might be purchased? No, I, well, I, or, well, I mean, you use the word concern. I use the word opportunity. Uh, you know, I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, for, for things of like uh, kind of deep scientific controversy, we want to ma- maintain our, you know, kind of, a, I guess, a, a financial distance. But, you know, I mean, you know, I, when I'm teaching logistic regression, why couldn't logistic regression be brought to you by Subway? eat fresh or something like that, you know? <laughs> no conflict there. Yeah. No conflict there. That seems reasonable. All right. You heard it. Subway, reach out. Shane Jensen, available for in I'm available. Yeah. Classroom. Guys, what is happening as far as you can see in the world of coronavirus? Anything, any developments, especially catch your eye? In the yeah. Last week? I think the big one this week that, you know, has been – talked about for a little while, but now it's gotten, I guess, rapid FDA approval would have to be the Yale saliva test. And why is it called the Yale saliva test? Well, because it was produced, it was developed at Yale University. And so that's, you know, they're the ones that their researchers have been doing it. They've announced at least they're not intending on making any money off it. They are doing it for the benefit of society. Um, As everyone knows, the most common form of COVID test active COVID test, separating that from the blood serum tests, has been, you know, the nasal swab. This one's a saliva test. is actually being used, as I'm watching the NBA right now, it's uh, being used by the NBA. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think it was even wasn't it, co-funded or something well, like that by the NBA, right? Right. I think my, my, my impression is that literally someone in the NBA read about this development back in the spring and reached out to the, to the, to the researchers at Yale and said, hey, we could y'all, use y'all's help. Let, let me uh, jump in, if you don't mind. Um, I, I, I'm very, of course, quite uh, supportive of any work that my alma mater is doing. So, yes, go, go Yale and go collaboration with the NBA. But this is, this is actually the fifth saliva test that has been, uh, that's on the market. I think that what makes this one potentially more interesting is it's a lot cheaper um, that they're doing this at cost. Cheaper and quicker, right? I, I mean, it's, it's also. Uh, no, they, the slivers are very quickly. So I will put, they're still PCR based. So it's not like the new generation of tests that are antigen based, which is, which is going to really change things because that's going to make it really fast. A PCR requires a PCR machine, requires reagents, which are really expensive. Um, and um, they, they have well, the best. Adi, Adi, uh, Adi, what is, what is, 
Adi, what does PCR stand for? Uh, so that's the polymerase chain reaction. That's the, uh, every, everybody doesn't know that? I'm sorry. Um, it's uh, it's uh, basically, this. it's a technique from the 80s, which allows you to magnify up a very small piece of genetic material. So you need only a little bit of virus in your nasal passages. I think as few as maybe 100 actual uh, molecules. And you can... Um, you can spin it up, you multi it multiplies it up and it multiplies some fluorescent dye along with it. And you can locate very, very early whether you have, um, whether there's a uh, amount, some virus in your nasal passages. And the problem with it is that it requires machinery, um, it's slow, uh, and it's, it just can't do the bulk like 10 million tests a day kind of thing that we really would need if we were going to try to have mass, mass frequent testing. Well, so but, 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 but when you say slow, it still has to go to a lab. Are we talking hours? Are we talking days? Or? Out. Yeah, but this, this, this test, it, yes, it has to go out. So these tests are in that same category. It's not like a, a, um, a strip where you just spit on it, wait 15 minutes and see where the line develops. Right. That's the right. newest. But Adi, I did, I, did think it was, I did think it was technologically different. It's something like it doesn't require RNA extraction. Some fundamental difference in this thing. from. The I, I mean, at least the articles I read about it made it sound like something that, I mean, not currently, but has the promise of being deployable, say, for example, at the start of a sporting event and at the end of a sporting event. Like, you know, it, it sounded like, you know, the testing would be, you, you know, the kind of delay would be on the minutes or hours scale, at least, as opposed to the day scale. Yeah, so my question has to do with, I mean, given it's roughly the same accuracy as some other tests, which, by the way, as we all know, are not particularly accurate, my question becomes, you know, let's just apply our statistical eyes to this. Um, are we going to eventually see where people take multiple tests? So, you know, for example, we can all, you know, as statisticians, you know, if tests could be done quickly, even if tests were errorful, but I could take five of them instantly and get the results in 15 minutes, I'll take five tests and then we'll get the results. I mean, I don't mean that's I, I, assuming whatever makes the test inaccurate is somehow something that in, independently occurs well, test by test. Question, right. right. I know that's, that's the right statistical question to ask. Are these independent tests? Yeah. What we may also see in the future is this is another thing. If you want more independent Shane, it might be, I take a saliva test, a nasal test and a, uh, you know, filter or the, uh, that's the gym. That's gym yeah. Test. The, the other test, and I take all of these, and let's see what the combination of these three say. Yeah. And again, I think you're right, Shane, for, to, to take advantage of the multiplicity of testing. If these things are perfectly correlated, that's not sounding too good to me. Well, yeah. let me just, they're actually well, not, the blood, they're, they're actually quite different. Um, so one thing you have to rec recognize is that the PCR is very sensitive to any amount of genetic material, even if the virus is fundamentally inactive anymore. And it's generally thought that after about 14 days, the virus is inactive, but it can stay in your nasal passages for up to months, um, even though it's just not, it's not causing anyone harm, not causing you harm, not causing other people harm. So the PCR is known for false positives. That they're not technically false. The, the material is there, but they're not actually tracking a, an actual active illness. So that's one of the problems with them. Others look for the spikes that are on the, actually on the virus, and it'll, it really is only detecting active virus. The problem is it's, it's, it's a very short window. So you could be starting to get, uh, and, and it needs a lot of material in order to, fi to, to find it. I think Got the it. other thing Got that it. caught my eye, which is not unrelated, I mean, it's certainly about COVID, was that um, the CDC just came out with guidelines uh, or a comment, if you'd like, a couple of days ago that says that they believe that people that are infected only get about three months of immunity. Now, it's not, it's right. not actually so, what they said. I saw the headline, but I, was, I didn't see the details underneath it. Isn't that what they, uh, so what was the details, Adi? Because I, that's what the I. The detail saw. was not at all. The details was that in three months, you can assume that you're fine. After that, we don't want to make any more assumptions. It was a, right. it was a, it was a different I, view. Yeah. It's a maximally conservative take, right? Because in all yes. likelihood. The, so, so they're basically, they're, they're kind of giving the closest thing to a scientific guarantee right now that immunity does at least last for three exactly. months. Yes. But they're not willing to kind of go beyond that window. In part that's because right. I guess we but really. If that's, so yeah. Guys, what, what, do you, what is your inference? If they give you a scientific guarantee for three months, what's your inference for like 90% likely? What's the length of time you think 90% likely? that you would have some immunity, given no that more, they're guaranteed no than, three months. No more than six months. 
Oh, I think I think it's I think that's it's much much longer. And the real issue is the virus. Does the virus itself adapt? Yeah, um, no, I. I mean, I, I would be willing to pay, pay, you know, just looking across all viruses and kind of vaccines in the past, I'd be willing to put more than a 10% probability on it kind of conferring some, you know, kind of version of permanent immunity, the kind of thing we get, you know, from measles or polio or something like that. It's just whether oh, the wow. virus, again, like, you know, this corona thing, is it going to be like the flu where every year we're going to have to get like an, a different variant or something of it? <laughs> okay. Okay, guys. What on immunization on the immunization front? Um, what are we hearing? I mean, I know there are literally hundreds of these labs working, in, in, and some are into phase three. But I, I did hear that phase three was going a little slower for at least a couple of folks than expected. Or than um, any developments? Any developments on the immunization front that has caught your eye? The the one development I had is that heard was that they're taking it to South Africa because that's where the cases are. Um, one of the challenges okay. of doing all these trials is that you typically want to find healthy young people as your earliest customers because they're the ones best with able to withstand any potential side effects. The problem is they're the least likely to, sh to have problems. And mm -hmm. so you're in this position where you lose what we call power when the baseline rates are fairly low. Um, ideally, you'd like to vaccinate the people who are most likely to get sick. Unfortunately, they're the people least likely to tolerate bad side effects and most likely to not do well with the virus. And so you got to. Let me it's, ask it's, a clarifying. It up. No, let me ask a clarifying question. What what do you need to see happen? So what's going to. So if you just give it to a bunch of folks and then. Can you can you can, I guess you can't know if somebody was exposed and didn't get sick because of the immunization. You can't distinguish that from those who. Who, who never were exposed. And so you yes. don't, you unless, don't you do a, unless you do a challenge trial. Yeah, it requires a challenge <laughs> trial, trial. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. super interesting. Yeah, right. just, to, just to build on what Adi said, I mean, this is kind of the low base rate problem that's kind of, you know, when in my area of the world, in marketing analytics, when, you know, people came out and said, for you to test whether targeted banner ads work, you need to show hundreds of millions of banner ads. Well, that's because the base rate of clicking is like one-tenth of one percent. So at that low right. base rate, even if something has a 30% lift, okay, so we go from 0.1% to, you know, maybe 0.13%, you just do the math on the number of ads you need to show, and it's hundreds of millions, and it's back to what Adi said, which is if you're dealing with something in a population that's extremely rare, you're going to end up with a massive sample size needed. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, Adi, Adi mentioned South Africa. I certainly, I, I, I saw a headline, you know, I, I think yesterday about how Brazil is also, you know, I mean, not ideal from a public health standpoint, but somewhat ideal for the development of vaccine in that they've got a very strong scientific community. And it's, you know, they, they have the kind of prevalence in cases that might give you a little bit more power compared to, say, you know, most parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up, um, we think of ourselves in the midst of a pandemic, but not anything like uh, um, other countries right now. And also we're very diffuse, right? So we're, we're a very large country, large in, in, in the land mass and in population. So you could have said maybe Texas or Florida several weeks ago, but they look like they've, they've come down the other side of the curve. There really isn't any one place right now where there's large numbers of uh, new cases. So it's United States is just off the table for this kind of testing. Wow. Yeah, the other part I found interesting relating to your original question, Kate, also was I looked at all three of the vaccines that are in the phase three, and I think this is an encouraging thing. I'm no scientist of this type, um, but they're all of different types, meaning mm -hmm. they're all a so different. Real, real quickly, Eric, clarifying question up front. Is it known that there are three and only three in the world in phase three? And does that not include the Russians who like skipped Phase three and went straight. Yeah, I'm not counting. The, I'm not counting the Russian one. I went onto the Johns Hopkins site. It gave the status of all. I guess it, it mentioned there were something were like 17 or something vaccines that are currently in the field now. It listed three of them at phase three. Okay. It also listed you know okay. the approach that each of them is taking, and they're all different approaches. And again, I go back to what I said a couple of weeks ago. 
I'm hopeful that what we end up with is some sort of cocktail approach that something is doing version one, another one's doing version two, another's doing version three. You take all three of them. I mean, you, you know, if I'm going to get an injection, as far as I'm concerned, it's shown to be safe. You can inject me with all three of them in one cocktail and I'm okay with that. Would you add the Russian one in just to just make sure? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do do we know even that enough is. about the Russian one about like which kind of vaccine? Like 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 do we have kind of like which vaccine American or, or you know which which phase three vaccine kind of maps the closest to it? Or I don't even know what information is available. I, I I I don't I don't know. But this is this is where we're going. This this is going to become the conversation going forward. We need more details on all of these things. And and one just to put a underscore on on Eric's point. We like diverse sources of information, and that's essentially what these immunizations are giving you when you have three different approaches to the thing. And we don't know exactly what's going to work. And so if they were all doing the same thing, it just happened to be that they're all doing the same thing. It's much less valuable to the world than the case that the three front runners are approaching it in three different ways. I wanted to follow up with Eric. Your, your incredible willingness to just jump in and take it is, is rather brave because the history of viruses <laughs> Um, not immunizations. We usually study these things over many, many years to ensure not only efficacy, but also safety. And this is the part of the, of the rapid rollout, the warp speed that is highly um, subject to concern. Usually you let this go over a long time and see what slowly emerges because vaccines, in, in, they cause your body to have an immune response. And those immune responses cause problems, right? So I'm, I'm, uh, and here's the part of the thing that's tricky. The population that is most easy to test is this, is the, is the population for whom the virus itself is the least, um, is the least damaging. So are you really going to take a vi a, vi a vaccine that has potentially, potentially, not, not knowingly, more of a risk than the disease itself? And this is part of the problem of, of rolling it out and testing it. So one of the points you're making right there, which is interesting, is that you should be more confident the more representative you are of the sample on which it was, it was tested. And if they go out and test a bunch of 30-somethings and you're a 60-something, then you mm -hmm. probably don't have as much comfort in the data that come out of that. That's super interesting. Yeah, Eric, I you, was, you, by the way, if we roll back the tape, Adi, I said, if it turns out to be safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Said, yeah. Not that brave. <laughs> but but your, your point is excellent, which is that um, – this, the distribution of side effects and the distribution of severity and who the vaccine is likely to be working for are pro almost certainly not uncorrelated. And so depending on mm -hmm. who the tests are being done on to start with in the trials, that may say something very different. And you're right. I think, matter of fact, just matter of fact, it's one of the interesting, another thing that caught my eye. You know, they've been doing lots of surveys even about who's willing to take the vaccine. There, there appears to be about one third of the U.S. population. I mean, who knows? It's stated intention data. It's a survey. But say they're not taking it under any circumstances whatsoever. So that's, that right? that's really well, absurd. Well, right now, there's 42% of the people take a flu vaccine every year. That's data. We know that. And so um, another 50% approximately are willing to take this kind of vaccine, which I would consider a very large effect size. But it's, if, I think if everyone thinks that 90% of the population is going to take this vaccine, it's just not true. Well, I, I mean, I, I again, I the flu is a, the flu is a, a an example of, of of a vaccine that's always been kind of quote unquote voluntary, right? I mean, so I, I mean, I, I do think the art of, the numbers for flu, you know, the it's the number of people willing to go through quote unquote the trouble to take a flu vaccine. I think right. you know, this COVID vaccine, if if one kind of comes out as determined to be safe, it's it's it's. Is it going to be a voluntary thing or is it going to be something that's required essentially? And, you know, then we're kind of measuring the number of people that would, and I don't think it's going to be zero, the number of the proportion of people that would um, refuse to take it even if it was required. Yeah, and by required, you don't mean, I mean, we don't live in a, in a, in a, in a, under a government that forces citizens, but we do work for organizations. And no, yeah, that's right. We want to go to movies and eat in restaurants. All of these organizations and entities. That's have correct. Yeah. When I say required, it'll be required for you to kind of, you know, I'm envisioning a future where we have an app on our phone or something like that, that you, ha you need to use to get into things. And a vaccine is the yep. way to get the green light on that. Well, fortunately, just to throw in a, a, a bit of uh, good news for that is even though a huge fraction of the population probably might refuse to take it, we don't need everybody to take it in order to make it effective. Um, this is, of course, the, the, the problem with the vaccine is that 
it opens us up to the tragedy of the commons where the individual best move is to not take it um, as long as everybody else is doing it then you're fine but if everyone makes the individually best move then it's a disaster for everyone so as long as uh, I, and i don't know what that cutoff is i don't know how many we need to take it and it's really all about reducing spread so that if there is a case it doesn't really have enough um, traction to spread widely and it just kind of dies out that's the yeah. ultimate goal is to give we us more dead ends yeah we that's right. That's right. We've talked about this some before. We want dead ends, essentially. And it isn't, it isn't the case that everyone has to be a dead end. It just has to be enough that it drives that RT down below one and hopefully dramatically below one. Yeah. Go ahead, Eric. The other thing that caught my eye was, you know, um, you remember early on, most of the people were relying, I'm not saying entirely, but were relying on the forecast by the IHME, which is out of Washington. And their recent release this week has a prediction of 300,000 deaths by December the 1st. Now, what's interesting about that- U.S. deaths. U.S. deaths by September the 1st, December the 1st. Now, what's interesting about that is obviously that would be a massive acceleration. It would be as many deaths in the next three months, essentially, than Mm -hmm. the last six months. But what's more important to me is what we've talked about, which is it has to have a massive standard error around it. And what I mean by that is a lot of it is going to have to be dependent on behavior because if behavior changes dramatically, you know, they even admit their number could be as low as 220,000. I think they're, they're, they must be doing some forecast, not only of transmission, but of proposed behavior. Uh, I, I, can I, uh, can I stake, stake my claim to bet against them right now? Although I have to say I'm no hero when it comes to forecasting accuracy, but I think that sounds to me, Nobody. uh, uh, really, really high. But I will point out that, um, you know, as you, it's really remarkable, there's two articles in the New York Times to, in the last day or so. The first one, both talking about New York City, and the first one began by saying everybody's forecast about New York turned out to be terribly off. Why? New York was hit very hard early, and everyone thought there must would be a resurgence by now, and that has not emerged. So the first article decided that it was going to credit, with really, not really any um, basis and evidence, that that credit is due to the governmental policies. And then the second article on the same day came out saying, maybe we misjudged how many people need to be immune to, in order to require herd immunity. So different articles, same paper, um, same quandary, which is why hasn't New York seen any resurgence, and two different, very different um, answers to why that hasn't happened. Real quickly, it's fascinating that you see those differences looking backwards. Of course, there are lots of differences looking forward, but it's fascinating that even after the fact, as how do we interpret facts? How do we interpret? How do we attribute causality varies? So it's it's (laughs) super interesting little world we live in right now. Yeah, I was just going to say about Adi's. I mean, you know, Adi, you've always said that, uh, you know, even when pre-COVID days, we've always talked about, you know, there's N, the sample size, and P, the rate. And so in this case, here's the one thing we can eliminate. We actually know exactly how many days there are between now and December the 1st, right? That we know. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's yeah. Not a right. That we know. That's not a variable we have to worry about. And let's say there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 107, 108 days. For that rate to be true, or 300,000 to be true, basically 11 to 1,200 people as an average would have to die each and every day. So now you start to question, okay, so... Have we had an extended period of time where that many people in the United States have died per day? Another way to think about it is at a given infection rate or at a given um, death rate for people that get infected, how many people just invert it? How many people would have to get infected on a given day or at least tested and infected on a given day um, for us to see this? The number sounds high. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the, the models always showed a big spike in September as people went back to school. That's everybody, if you ever looked past the, uh, the summer forecast and looked into the fall, you saw these spikes and it was all based on, you know, all schools aren't gonna come back together, but some schools are. And er- I think every epidemiologist out there expects that to lead to a spike in cases. If that does, if that leads to a, it takes no, it doesn't take a doubling of the rate. It takes a 30 to 50% and we would see it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, got it. All right. All right, guys. Well, that's a, a good little spin around the world of coronavirus. Gives us some context for the rest of our show. We'll turn after the break to a more sports-oriented conversation. Halfway there have been lots of sports to talk about. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
weekly show here in the time of coronavirus. We're doing one-hour shows, taping them on Mondays, rolling them out on Wednesdays. We talk about coronavirus for the first half hour, important context, and then in at least the second half hour. Talk a little sports. Guys, there's lots of sports going on. We got Shane Jensen here. We have Eric Bradlow here. We just lost Audie Weiner. He jumped in, gave us a few uh, perspectives on the virus and had to move along. So, Eric, I know you're excited about a few things. What caught your eye? Well, let's just start with, before we get to basketball, let's just start with the sport that's been going for a while now, which is baseball. And then something happened this week that, and it's still ongoing, which is shocking to me. So the Cleveland Indians have played the Detroit Tigers this weekend, and they've now beaten them. I'm going to say the number and I'll say it again. 20, 20 consecutive times they've beaten them. Wow. Now, the MLB record, that's actually not the MLB record. It's 23 uh, Orioles and the Royals back in 1969. But this is tied for the second longest streak in the history. Now, I, this is the kind of math I always like to do for these things. Let's pretend every game was 50-50, although we know it's not, just for simplicity, yes. Yes. right? A half to the 10th is 1,024. So a half to the 20th is a little over one in a million. And so, mm-hmm. you know... Just to give you an order of magnitude, I like to say it. I mean, we understand they're not all 50-50, but, you know, this isn't a common occurrence. And I couldn't believe it when I saw it. This is the 20th consecutive time yeah. they've beaten them. And the streak is still ongoing right now. So that, No, that's- and I mean, just for a matter of perspective, something like, you know, like like the A's won 20 games in a row, right? Ba- like like 20 games in a row, not against the same team, which is actually probably closer to that 50-50, right? If you play winning 20 games in a row against kind of like, you know, varying opposition probably gets you closer to that 50-50 thing. And that was the first time that had happened ever, right? So, I mean, like that... I think 20 or 21 is the overall record of consecutive games. That's correct. Um, is there any explanation for it? I mean, I do think of the Indians as a relatively strong franchise. I think of the Tigers. The Tigers are the, very bad. Uh, it's been a relatively, relatively weak franchise. Yeah. But there aren't any kind of interactions, right? This is just chance. No, we're going to you, – you, you flip that dice enough times. You roll the dice enough times, and you're going to see it. Something like that? It is true. Um, there are a lot of, of you know – teams that play each other a lot of times. And so you'd have to look at how many 20 game streak, not even streaks. How many times do people play each other 20 times over, let's say, a, you know, a period and how many of them are there. But I think Shane's right. I think the number becomes a lot less rare. If you believe the base rate of the Tigers is what it's been the last couple of years, which is about one third. And I know it doesn't sound okay. a lot to people, but when it's two thirds to the 20th, as opposed yeah. to a yeah, half to the 20th, the numbers change dramatically. Yeah. I mean, just think of it. Two-thirds times two-thirds is 44% as opposed to a quarter. We've now cut it by 60% right there. So it doesn't take long, and it goes multiplicatively. So things could get – it's still probably one in 100,000 or something, but it's not one in 100 million. Right. So that's, right. That's, right. Struck, right. Right. that struck my eye as so well. Real quickly, on the, on the Indians, it sounds like this is a team that has, has been kind of upset by the coronavirus because of some player behavior. So a couple of their starting pitchers snuck out of the team hotel, violated protocol, and it's turned into a real clubhouse issue. And on playing field issue, because this is, one of the, this is a, st- a strong starting rotation, two strong contributors to that. They've been sent away. Now they have players who are threatening to sit out if those guys are ever brought back. It's this huge trust violation issue within the team. And it's a, you just hate to see it. You hate to see it because it just takes a couple of guys to just break this thing and everybody else is doing everything they can, making all these sacrifices, and two guys try to go out. They, could, they do go out in Chicago and put everything at risk. But it's a shame to see a franchise like the Indians having to deal with something like that. But we're going to see that. We're going to see it up and down up and down the country in every sport, there's going to be some clubhouses that people maintain the protocols and some clubhouses where they don't. Yeah. The other thing that kind of caught my eye in baseball also was looking at like um, some teams that have emerged, like for example, we know the Oakland A's, but they were good last year. But like if the playoffs started today, the Baltimore Orioles would be in the playoffs. Now, yeah. now the reason why. No, that's amazing. Really? Yeah. They're not one of the top two in the American league East, but those make it. And then the next two best teams make it. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting okay. about that is this is what I've wondered all along. If you knew, even if you were a weaker team, if you knew you, and we've talked about this briefly, if you knew you only had to play 60 games, 
which you do now. You know this. Could you be better over those 60 games? Because you don't have to worry about resting players. You can, maybe you can go to a shorter rotation. You don't have to worry about guys wearing out. So I'm just wondering if, you know, in some sense, even the bad teams won't be kind of quite as bad. Yeah, because in baseball, you always hit that mid, mid, mid-season trade deadline and, and, and the, bad, the teams out of contention just offload their, anybody that has market value and you just get this bifurcation. Teams playing for the playoffs versus teams not playing for the playoffs. Maybe that dynamic doesn't exist as much this year. Well, I mean, it, it, it might not exist as much in the sense, certainly that I think trade deadline, you know, the kind of usual offloading, you know, there, there's going to be less teams that are completely out of contention you right. know, by that, by that deadline, just because of the, both the shortened season and maybe some compacting to the kind of records that. Well, know, remember they also increased the number of teams. that. Make and and, and yeah, I was just going to say, it's really, you know, the, the playoffs are kind of a much more wide open entity this year than they otherwise would be anyway. So no, I, I think there are still a few teams, the Boston Red Sox being one of them that are basically already out of contention. Oh, um, oh, right. And uh, that I think will still be kind of, you know, the kind of traditional sellers at the deadline. But I think there's going to be fewer teams that do that. And, yeah, I, I think that's probably going to lead to a little less, you know, kind of spread in sort of the records, you know. Though I, I think you'll probably still get more spread in the records just like in terms of win percentage than you would just because of the shorter season. Just to let you know, Shane, the trade deadline in baseball is August 31st. So it's only two weeks away and the season yeah. just started. But that's, that's right. It yeah, it's true. It's funny. It's, it's really funny. You look at the standings, the NL is, is weird in that there are very few teams that are very different from 500. I mean, the Marlins are leading the East. They haven't played as many games, but from a win percentage perspective, they're leading the East at nine and six. The, the Braves are three above 500. Only the Cubs and the Dodgers and maybe the Rockies have really separated themselves from 500 ball over there. Yeah. Um, the Cubs have been a happy story. Those guys think that they're really doing well this year so far. AL's a little different. They got more, a lot more separation, as you might expect, if one league is down. Um, or, well, I say that. Are they playing cross-league cross, cross league games? They are playing cross-league games. Okay. Yes, yep. they are. Okay. They are yep. playing cross-league games. Um, but it's kind of an interesting case because the NL has, has had basically – all the teams that have sort of had these kind of corona outbreaks. So the kind of variation in number of games played is much more stark in the NL than it is in the AL. In the AL, it's relatively balanced. Like there's no teams that have played a kind of disproportionately fewer, greater number of games. Whereas, you know, in the, in the NL, it's, you know, the Cubs have played 19 games and the Cardinals have played eight. Right. Amazing. Well, the AL, you have your typical love to love them and love to hate them. We've got the Yankees and, and A's leading the way on the mm-hmm. AL side. Yankees are putting together a nice season, well, but don't they have a bunch of guys on the, on the injured list now? Just, 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 the, the, just the three best players. I mean, the three oh, best no. offensive players on the team. I mean, uh, Giancarlo Stanton's on the injured list. Uh, Aaron Judge is on the injured list. And LeMahieu's on who's leading the batting uh, race at 420. He's on the injured list. And so their top three hitters are all on the injured list. But this is, I hate to say it, I mean, I'll say it, I'm happily saying it as a Yankee fan, this is the major advantage of a $200 million payroll. It's like, yeah, you're right, $70 million of money's on the sideline. Okay, so only $130 million is on the field right now. So they'll be fine. I mean, you know, I, I joke, but I mean, if another team's best player or two best players or three best players are uh, injured, they may have fifteen million dollars of people on the field. The Yankees still have one hundred and thirty right. million. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of injuries, we speculated ahead of time about whether the the shortened prep, the on again, off again nature of everything so far would have any consequence for injuries. Of course, the the unions have worried about this a great deal. It's been a, it was a sticking point with the NFL. Have we observed enough baseball to know whether the injury rate is appreciably different? I certainly haven't seen anything about it. Um, and you probably, pro- I mean, the short answer is probably we have not observed enough baseball where one could make any kind of substantive statement about a difference in injury rates this year versus, well, you know, I guess if the injury rate had been, you know, substantially elevated, we probably would have heard about it by now, but I don't think it really has okay. been. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, certainly good, good. You know, some of the, a lot of the high profile cases like Mike Stanton and Aaron Judge, as Eric was kind of lamenting, you know, I, I mean, those are, I mean, that is something that happens every year. So. Um, so well, it's, it's kind of hard to, to the Yankees, <laughs> for, for those particular uh, last players. Of years. That's right. 
So oh, we are um, playing some playoffs. We're in the playoffs in a couple of other sports. In yeah. fact, it's so weird. Not only do we have playoffs in August in the NBA, we have them in an August afternoon. So as we're taping, round one has kicked off. They're playing four games back to back to back. And just as we started taping, the, um, the first game went to OT. Yeah. I think the, the Jazz ended up getting clipped by... Um, afternoon hockey has been a real delight as well, I have to say. That's been fun, weekday afternoon hockey. The, the ta- Tampa, Tampa of- Bay is playing Carolina right now, actually. Oh, no, no, Tampa Bay, sorry, playing Columbus right now in their uh, game, game four of their series. Well, the, the, let's talk about that first because the NHL is out ahead of NBA. There are a few games into the first yeah, round. Yeah, there are a few games into the first-, the first round. Already had a very entertaining qualifying round and uh, kind of round-robin uh, action to kind of get p- people warmed up. And, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been fantastic already. There's been some, you know, we had one of the longest games in, in NHL hit playoff history last week. Game one of the Tampa Bay five, Columbus five overtimes, is that five right? Five overtimes. Carposalo, this had, Columbus Blue Jackets goaltender that nobody had ever heard of before, now has the NHL record for saves in a game. <laughs> Which is something many? like 88. No! Yeah, yeah. No. yeah. That's absurd. He had like 88 so saves in a losing to put effort. put that in context, for, for a really good, a, a normal regulation game, 30 saves would be really good. 30, no? Yeah, 30 to 40, you'd be like that goaltender put in work. Yeah, like the Flyers just won one to nothing the other day, and the guy had twenty three saves. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so looking across the looking across the the bracket here, now the the, the Stanley Cup they're going to reseed this thing after the first round, so they're going to they're going to take the top seed and put it against the lowest remaining seed and on down the line. But as you look at the series, anything jumping out to you? Our Flyers are up two to one against the Blackhawks. That's exciting or no the Canadians. against the canadians and that's 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 definitely i think going to be one of the best series. like that's a very evenly matched series even though the flyers are technically the number one seed i think those two teams match okay. up really well against each other i think the big surprise so far has been the capitals the three seed in the east they're down three games to nothing to new york islanders the sixth seed so that's you know that's kind of got the brewings of of, of you know kind of a, a first round upset certainly let me ask you a question just from us. In the Caps, the Caps, I, maybe it was just one year this happened, but I, they, they, they have at least one year, maybe a couple of years, come through with the best regular season record and then flamed out in the playoffs. I mean, they were away. kind of, you know, the, yeah. I mean, in fact, two years ago when they won the Stanley Cup, that was kind of their final breakthrough to actually finishing off in the finally playoffs. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been, right. for a decade, they've been a dominant regular season team, basically, and they finally broke through a couple of years ago. Um, and this is, you know, perhaps looking kind of like a, a return to Washington form where they, they uh, may flame out the playoffs. But um, Eric, I stepped on you there. What, what were you going to no, jump no, no. in with? I was just going to ask Shane, is the reason why it's surprising because of those two teams? Is it six versus three that's surprising you that it's three nothing? Or would any of these series being three nothing now surprise you a little bit? Like, no, no. I mean, I think, in fact, to a certain extent, the fact that there's only one particular, you know, I mean, the NHL playoffs are kind of, you know, relatively high variance in general, right? And, and the fact that we're, we're really kind of looking at the potential for only one sweep in an opening round of playoffs, that actually almost seems surprisingly low to me. So the <laughs> fact that so many of the series are kind of, you know, kind of competitive is, is, is even right. more surprising, I think. But yes, you know, in, in the particular case of the Capitals Islanders, I think the Capitals, you know, I mean, A, I think they're a little, you know, the three seed, you know, if I can't remember what the regular season record was, but I think they'd be, you know, at least the three seed, if not higher, if the play, if, if, if the kind of season had gone, it's normal length. Here's an interesting so question, Shane. So if I, if I had you bet right now or pick, I mean, let's pretend the playoffs hadn't started. So I'll, I'll have you forget what's happened. Yep. Which sport would you have predicted more sweeps in in the first round, the NBA or the NHL? NBA. More sweeps in the NBA? Yeah, just because I feel like the uh, uh, team, you know, the kind of distance between teams is, is, is greater. There's a greater disparity in the first round between – like the one versus eight is less of an even matchup in basketball than it is in hockey in general. And you would also say the same about the MLB, right? If there were a bunch of seven-game series in baseball, you would expect, again, you'd still rank at probably NBA. Maybe I'd have to think about it. Um, certainly, uh, probably MLB would be the lowest, right? I think so. I mean, thing, crazy things happen, you know, in, in, in MLB, as you know. But, like, yes, I, I think that's – it's the lowest just because I think the teams are the most evenly matched, I think, in baseball. Playoff well, so there, series there, in there are two different, 
two different inputs here, though. One is the disparity in the teams, and the other is the nature of the game. And yeah, that's nature, right, how stochastic game each individual are, game is. And we're kind of confounding those two right. things together. I agree. That's right. Um, and, so, and, of course, Michael Mobison. Michael Mobison wrote a book in the early 2000s called The Success Equation, which is he, – he's a, he's a financial – he's a research analyst in finance, and, but he was using sports to talk about stochasticity and how it varies across domains. And he exactly looks at this question of which sports are more deterministic and which sports are mm -hmm. more random. Um, and I think Boston, kind of – go ahead, Shane. Well, I think kind of an interesting question that maybe we can discuss here, like in, in this kind of COVID, you know, kind of, you know, sort of context here is do we expect – you know, I mean, we've, we've talked every year about like, you know, how much more, you know, chalky – maybe the NBA playoffs are versus the NHL playoffs versus the MLB playoffs. But, you know, in this kind of weird COVID sort of circumstance, do we expect potentially, do you, do we think all of these things are going to be less chalky, more chalky? I'm, I'm not even sure. I could argue it probably either way. Yeah. So I've been trying to think about this and not doing it by simulation, but think mathematically. And I just haven't spent the time thinking about it with essentially no home field edge. Let's say that's the only thing that gets eliminated. Nothing else changes, by the way. Let's imagine that was true. So let's imagine a team that's the better team. Let's say the Lakers playing Portland. Let's say without the home field edge, the Lakers would have been 55-45, and maybe games they played at home, they would have been 60-40, and games on the road, they would have been 50-50. So which one, like, would you rather have seven games at 55-45, or roughly half the games at 60-40, and the other half of the games at 50-50? So I've been trying to think about this, like, there should be, I mean, I can do the math, but I've been thinking, this should be obvious, I should be able to come up with this in five seconds, and for some reason, I can't do it in five seconds, but that, I've been thinking about that exact issue, yeah. about the elimination of the home fee, home court, and what it does in the NBA, and what it what it implies for the length of series we should see. As you were describing it, my 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 intuition you know kind of went to i'd want to be the team that had the 60 40 chances even if it's only on a subset of the games but i i wouldn't be surprised if the yeah, math proved maximize wrong. my probability of winning but i'm not sure it shortens the series oh that might be the case no you're and right so you're if right. there is that trade-off which has always been my intuition um, and by the way, if somebody wants to tweet out because you're saying, Bradlow, you idiot, it's obvious, just tweet at me at either eBradlow or, or W Moneyball, and let's have a discussion about this on Twitter. So I do like the fact that, it, that the whole COVID thing introduces some randomness to the NBA playoffs, because historically, there has not been much interest until we, at least we get to the conference championships. This year, we've just started, we started this afternoon. Let's walk through the series, guys, and tell me, especially you guys have been paying a little bit more attention. Tell me how this is shaped up, whether the Sixers have any chances. I think that Matt was talking about the, uh, the over-under on the number of wins for the Sixers against the Celtics does not look good at all. But how, how, what do you think about the play as we kick them off today? What do you think about the playoffs? There's some really exciting series here. I mean, Philadelphia, Boston, right now, Boston's a fairly heavy favorite because of Ben Simmons being out for the season. I think if Ben Simmons had been playing, I mean, Kate, well, let me just ask you a question before I get to that. In football, if a very consequential player is out, roughly how many points does the line get adjusted? Because right now, Boston's about a five-and-a-half, six-point favorite. I'm just wondering if Ben Simmons was playing, it's not like the Sixers would be favored. He's not worth seven points, ten points. That's a massive number. What is it like in football? Well, the, the, only, the only guys that should move the lines really are the quarterbacks. And – what we what Rufus and I have always believed that the lines moved a little more than they should, given high profile injury, because in our analysis, it's rare to find a position where a loss matters very much um, other than the quarterback. Now, to be fair, I think a truly outstanding player like a Gronkowski, like the like the elite player at a position can make a, or an Aaron a Donald or something like that or an Aaron Donald. But but it, it takes that kind of elite level of play to make a difference among quarterbacks. I mean, people say Brady was worth, you know, it could be like six or seven points or some absurd. I mean, it really starts getting high. Most, obviously most quarterbacks aren't, aren't worth that. And most players aren't going to move the line at all. Well, so, I mean, either way, the NBA playoffs, I think people think are exciting. I mean, Phil Boston's a high-profile series. While L.A. is going to beat Dallas, you know, you do have on one side, you have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. On the other side, you have Luka Doncic and Chris Porzingis. So you have two big stars on either team. Um, obviously, you have uh, – 
Houston and Oklahoma City. That's a big match up there. And the one that's intriguing most people is the Lakers-Portland. You know, Portland went to the Western Conference Finals last year. And, you know, they're the eighth seed, but a lot of people say they're the eighth seed because of, you know, injuries. They had a lot of injuries earlier in the year. Now, And they picked up Carmelo Anthony. You know, I, L.A., I never forget, I'll, I'll always use the Shane Jensen rule. They still have LeBron James, right? Yeah. I mean, that's always your rule. Lakers still have LeBron, right? So they're going to beat Portland, but I don't think they're going to run through Portland. And do you think there's anything to, I mean, to the extent that a team can kind of have like extra moment. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that, again, this COVID situation is interesting because it mostly removes these kind of like late season momentum kind of things, right? Because they all kind of started from the same vantage point, but at the same time, no Port- Portland's been playing much more. The last few games of quote unquote warm up for the playoffs have been much more consequential to Portland than they have been to LA. This is the way I'm going to view it though. This is why I think LA people are, First of all, I don't think it mattered. Those games mattered nothing to L.A. because Mm -hmm. they were the one seed. This is the big advantage I see. We all agree LeBron James is one of the top players in the NBA, right? We also agree that he's older now. The fact that he doesn't have to travel has got to be beneficial to him. And so I really believe that you – and by the way, there are no back-to-back games now. They're playing them every other day. So he should be rested. I think you're going to get the full throttle LeBron. And that's why I actually give the Lakers maybe more of a chance than they had before. And you don't think that's necessarily specific to LeBron. You think, like, would you expect kind of older, like maybe the the older, you know, older kind of stars to maybe do better than they otherwise would have? in this? None of the other teams. Name me a team that has an older star. I mean, Toronto doesn't have an older star. Uh, Boston, definitely not. The Clippers, no. Um, I mean, which teams that have possibilities here? Houston, not really. I mean, maybe Westbrook and Harden are not young anymore. You know, Giannis. I guess that would be be who I would kind of think of because those guys definitely have had, you know, in in past playoffs, you could kind of have seen them wear down, certainly, too. Oh, absolutely. Do their style of play. But, Eric, you're saying that that James is sufficiently transcendent that he's – he can carry the team and he doesn't have to carry the team. He's got some good help there, obviously, but you're really, you're really more or less saying that if once it gets serious, James is at least good to guarantee one round victory. And, and I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's true in general. I don't know if it's true of James these days. I don't know if it's true against Portland. I mean, Portland has a pretty good player, their top guy is ridiculous. He's just absolutely ridiculous. No, it's not just that. Where the Lakers are weak is where Portland is strong. The Lakers' backcourt is not that strong. And so who does Portland have? They have Lillard McCollum. That's the, in my view, that's the best backcourt in the NBA. And then you add on the fact that Carmelo Anthony, they've got, you know, they've got some Nurchich. They've got some guys that can play. So this is the thing. It's the Lakers' frontcourt against the Portland backcourt. It's great. Yeah. I'm I'm excited about that series, it's, it, and I love I love that I'm excited about a first round NBA playoff series. I'm not typically because it's too, it's too boring, but um, that's great. So there's this also you you said it, but we didn't go into it. The Rockets Thunder. There's just so much you know mixed blood in that series. You know they can't help but be interesting to have those guys playing their former team that way. Yeah, that that's a great series as well. Absolutely, I think. You know, it's the NBA, and the fact is there are going to be four games every day. That's the beauty of it. Well, also about that, real quickly about this, uh, those are a couple of our favorite general managers. I mean, Daryl Morey obviously is more or less the godfather in basketball for, for this stuff. But then Sam Presti with the Thunder just continues to do an amazing job doing what he can with such a small market franchise. And Presti's one of the nicest guys in the business. He's also friendly to the analytics world. And so it's fun to see him and Maury, his team and Maury's team go at it there in the first round. Um, all right, gentlemen, uh, anything else on NBA? Well, just quickly. What about other sports? We got to – please, Eric. Yeah, the other sport I was going to talk about just briefly is, you know, I want to say this, I mean, I, and I tweeted about this on at W Moneyball earlier this week. If Novak Djokovic end up winning, ends up with the most grand slams in tennis – and it's because of this year's U.S. Open. I absolutely will – I will call him an illegitimate champion. 
because look on the men's. You do love applying asterisks. Is yeah, asterisks. I mean, look, Nadal's not playing. Marinka's not playing. Federer's not playing. Uh, Kyrgios is not playing. And forget the men's side. The women's side with Simona Halep pulling out today. Six of the top eight women are not playing. Of the top eight women in the world, six of them are not playing. So come on. This yeah. is an asterisk. This is an asterisk written yeah. all over it. I mean, I think this so, I, across all these sports, there's going to be kind of a, a, a 2020 asterisk anyway, right? Because these are just completely like, I mean, MLB, obviously, whoever wins the World Series, it's not going to, you know, kind of be the same as most other years, right? Um, if the Yankees win the World Series, they've, they'll, I'll, I'll declare them officially having 27 and a half championships. Now you're getting crazy, Shane. Oh, come on now. Well, consider the. Consider college football. We haven't yep. talked about college football. We don't. It's just such a mess. It'll be more interesting to talk about next week after after the fall camps. See if anybody can stay healthy when the when the students come back. But they're going to play. You know, at best they'll play three conferences, three power conferences in the fall and and two in the spring. And how do you do a championship under those circumstances? You don't yeah. more or less. But, well, but, but it's not just about it's not just about the championship. It's also about getting those guys on the field letting people have a break and watch the game and those kinds of things. But my gosh, it's twisted for sure. Look, no. And I mean, um, I think, it, go ahead, Eric. Yeah. As I say, the other related thing just quickly in tennis was I've been, no one's been a bigger fan of Serena Williams than me. She wins a title. She ties Margaret court for the most people could put an asterisk next to that. Well, real quickly. Uh, it's, it's, it's sibling sport golf. We've got a tour championship starting this week. Remind us, and real, real quickly, Eric, because we're going to run out of time, but remind us, because golf is one of the few sports that's kind of going forward in full bloom. You know, nothing's really changed for these guys other than not having gallery out there. What, what is the tour championship again? So right now there's three tournaments. The top 125 on the FedEx points play this week. They get more points. After that, only the top 70 advance. And then after that, the top 30 advance to what's the tour championship. And then a couple of years ago, they went to this whack job thing where they don't all start at the same score to par. The person number one starts at minus 10, then minus eight, then minus six, then minus four, and then a bunch of people at minus three, two, one. So literally, you could be number 29 in the world, and you're, you start that tournament 10 shots behind the leader. Yeah, so it's whacked, it's whacked, we agree, but it's transparent, which is the solution to the problem of them saying, you know, play the game, and then there's some calculator over here running the point totals, and no one knows what happens until after the match is over. This, they just boil it all down, they put it on the leaderboard and say, hey, you can watch the leaderboard to know who's going to go to the next round. Or not that only that, thing, but is- every point you earn in those first two tournaments does matter because you'd rather be eighth going into the final tournament than 24th. You've made it, but one you start out at minus six, and the other one you start at minus two. So it's four shots, yeah. but that's starting this week. All right, guys, that's been another show, another Wharton Moneyball. One-hour versions we're doing here during the time of coronavirus for the whole crew here. Audie Weiner, who stepped away at the halfway point. Shane Jensen in City Center. Eric Bradlow back from his travels and Cade Massey down in Central Texas and from Eddie D, boss man running the show thank you guys for listening, come back and join us again next week between now and then, enjoy your sports